0: One of my favorite objects in the exhibition is a biconical bead. It's, a, it's an object that I've known of for a long time. It's in the collection of the Troy in- Institute of Art. It dates to the late 18th or 19th century, and it was probably made in Senegal. Um, the, it's quite large. It's two to three inches in diameter at its widest point. A biconical bead basically looks like two ice cream cones that are put together at the mouth. And um, so this is a bead that I first saw illustrated in a book in the 1990s, and I've just always loved it. And it was only through this project that I've come to understand where the sh- that bead shape comes from. It's actually a bead shape that originates in the medieval period and possibly even before. And it's really widespread across the um, Islamic
1: world. And that is the voice of Kathleen Bedford burzak and she's describing her favorite object from the collection she curated uh, for Northwestern's Block Museum of Art titled Caravans of Gold, Fragments in Time. After it closed at Northwestern in July of 2019, it traveled to the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto, where it is running until February 2020. And then starting April 8th, it'll be at the National Museum of African Art at the Smithsonian Institute, where it will be until November 29th, 2020. The exhibit is a history of medieval Africa, drawing off of discourses of globality, migration, language, and religion released alongside it. And the reason we're talking to Kathleen today is the exhibit's catalog, which was produced by both Princeton University Press and the Block Museum 2019. It's not your conventional catalog. Yes, it includes details of the items in the collection. They're all photographed stunningly. But the format is totally readable. It's a selection of essays. Some are archaeological. Some are written from the perspective of art history. Some are more creative. If you physically cannot make it to the exhibit, the catalog is a totally different experience, and I highly encourage you to pick it up and enjoy it. Even if you can make it to the exhibit, the catalog will enrich and deepen your knowledge of these worlds. We should also note that the catalog was shortlisted for the Alice Award, which is awarded annually to an illustrated book of distinction. So that's the level of quality. So today on New Books, we'll be talking to Kathleen Bickford-Burzak, who is Associate Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Block Museum of Art at Northwestern University. She is the author of For Hearth and Altar: African Ceramics from the Keith Collection. I'm the co editor of Representing Africa in American Art Museums, a Century of Collecting and Display. And she edited Caravans of Gold, the catalog. I'm going to let her introduce herself to us now. I came to art
0: history as an undergraduate. Um, I had the good fortune, I was um, at a very small university in Colorado. It's called the University of Northern Colorado. I was an art major and um, I had the good fortune of having a wonderful uh, mentor who was the art historian um, in the department. His name is Chip Cornell, and he was an Africanist by training. So he taught classes on African art um, within the curriculum, the art history curriculum there, and he encouraged me to become an art historian. Um, I then went to graduate school at Indiana University, And my advisors there were Roy Sieber and Patrick McNaughton. Patrick worked in Mali and um, was uh, uh, an inspiration for my um, deep interest in the history of Mali. Roy Sieber was um, an art historian who also was deeply involved in museums and the work of exhibition making and was one of the founders of the National Museum of African Art um, was their first chief curator. So um, Roy got me um, excited about working in museums. And, um, you know, the rest is sort of um, history, I guess. I took the those seeds um, from those wonderful mentors and built it into the career that I have today. I was for um, 18 years the curator of African art at the Art Institute of Chicago. Oh. And then six years ago, I moved from there to the Block Museum here at Northwestern University to be the um, Associate Director of Curatorial Affairs, essentially the Chief Curator, because um, Northwestern wanted a museum that engaged with art across time, place, and culture. Northwestern is also um, the first American um, North, well, the first U.S. university to start an African studies program. It was started by Melville J. Herskovitz. And um, so the university has a deep commitment to Africa and African studies. And so as as an Africanist, I couldn't think of a more exciting place to work at a museum. And um, we have um, the wonderful Herskovitz Library here, which is... um, the most important, one of the most important libraries of African studies in the world. And in fact, some of the manuscript pages in the Caravans of Gold exhibition are on loan from the collections of the Herskovitz Library, as is the beautiful um, mid-16th century copy of Leo Africanus's Description of Africa.
1: Yeah, I noticed both of those when I went in. As an intellectual story, I couldn't help but look to see where the provenance of the manuscripts were, and I was really excited to see that they came from the yeah. collection.
0: Well, we're really privileged also to have three books on loan from the Ahmed Baba Library in Timbuktu, mm-hmm. and it's worth saying that um, just like the book has contributions from um, scholars working across um, Mali, working in Mali, Morocco, and Nigeria. We also have loans from Mali, Morocco, and Nigeria, and we're um, so grateful to the institutions in those countries that have um, lent materials and uh, works of art to this exhibition for a two-year period.
1: Caravans of Gold, the catalog edition, is a sight to behold. It's rather large, it's typical of a coffee table style book, and it covers different genres of writing, and the text is divided into four sections. The first section is titled Groundwork, and it looks at medieval trade routes, cultural heritage, gold. The second section, which is titled Sites, questions geography at the city level, at the regional level, and it looks at it through both a political and an economic perspective. The third section, titled Matter in Motion, naturally looks at how objects move. And the final section, Reverberation, closes with a piece on contemporary migration today, uh, which includes a discussion of refugees. Paint a picture for us of the trans-Saharan region um, during the period the exhibit covers the eighth through 16th centuries, and what civilizations this exhibit covers. Mm-hmm. So um, the exhibition
0: and the book both look at a really broad um, scope of Territory. Um, it is this. This is a story that um, where many different regions connect. Um, it's a trade that was um, functioning locally, regionally, interregionally, and um, and to at very very long distances. So the Sahara is its heart, um, and uh, in the eighth to the sixteenth century. Um, the Sahara and its close sort of, um, fringes were, um, predominantly, um, the, the place of Amazigh or Berber peoples. And, um, in the exhibition, we particularly, um, have a focus on the Tuareg because, um, they were really primary in, um, being the, uh, Masters of movement um, across the Sahara in that period. And um, but then the exhibition also intersects and the, and the book with um, the uh, um, you know like the, the Atlas region of Morocco and then um, uh, North Africa, including um, you know cities along and around the Mediterranean and then um, Europe itself. And then moving southward, there's a big focus in the exhibition on the Western Sudan and that sort of Mande region of the Western Sudan, Um, and then the forest regions of West Africa. So we look at how um, the Sahara is a conduit for trade, but so is the Niger River and so is the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a story that has to be that where we see how um, regions and languages and cultural practices and religious practices all um, sort of meet up and require um, navigation and negotiation to make this kind of trade happen.
1: Today, we take for granted that the objects that we hold in front of us can come from a multitude of places, from different countries, from different continents. But what if I told you that in medieval West Africa you could find porcelain from China? Um, So you mentioned the movement of Arabic, the movement of ideas. Uh, What about the movement of commodities, so goods and also enslaved peoples? How does that um, factor into the exhibition and the catalog? The movement of
0: um, things is the kind of core of um, especially the first part of the exhibition actually moves through the entire exhibition um, because that what is what comes to us in the archaeological record and um, so another one of the contributors of the catalogue Abdallah Fili um, who's a Moroccan archaeologist has called the project an homage to archaeology and um, in some ways that's it's very beautiful but it's also really true Um, so In the archaeological record, we find fragments of um, things that were part of that past, and um, they evoke for us the um, important commodities that were circulating, things like glass beads and um, terracotta and glazed ceramics and vessel glass and... um, copper um, and its alloys and gold. So this is what the the sort of starting point is for the exhibition. But we can't imagine the movement of all those materials um, without also thinking about and seeing the movement of people um, and then the movement of languages, the movement of religious practices, the movement of ideas. And of course, slavery is... Um, perhaps one of the hardest things to make tangible through an art exhibition, because um, while it's written into the texts of the time, um, there aren't a lot of material or actually, I don't know of any material remains of the medieval period that um, make it tangible in terms of trans-Saharan trade. So we reference it in the exhibition by um, referring to the descriptions in Arabic of trans-Saharan trade that are contemporaneous with the medieval period. So writers like Al-Bakri and Al-Umari and even um, Batuta and others. And then we also look um, briefly at um, the Ganawha, um cultural practices in Morocco and how people who identify as Gnawa in Morocco are identifying as the descendants of enslaved West Africans.
1: Ravens of Gold both as an exhibit and as a catalog and I think you're starting to see that we're both talking about the exhibit and the catalog because they're so much intertwined even though both can be consumed as different objects. So the exhibit and the catalog are both trying to disrupt your notions of what is medieval, what is global, what is arabic, what is african, what is muslim. But what about something more basic? What about what we consider cities. Okay, so if we can take a, um, we can move over from things that do move to things that don't move, cities and settlements, because that's quite a big part of the exhibition. I mean, I really like what you said about um, one of your authors, how the exhibition is an homage to archaeology, because when you pick up the catalog, it's this gorgeous, heavy coffee table book, and it really does... I think honor the objects in the exhibition. When I saw the exhibition, um, all the objects looked familiar. And it was partially because they were photographed so beautifully and so well that you could appreciate them in person just as well as you could appreciate them on the page. So I mean, it is really an achievement itself. But the articles in it, I was surprised to see. I mean, easily the first half to first 75% is archaeology that's really woven well, uh, woven in well with the history of the period. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I was getting a history lesson, but I was also getting quite a lot of information about the history of contemporary archaeology as well, which was <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and To see sort of the discovery and the rediscovery of all these places that in your mind are almost imaginary, like, all these legends associated right. with them like such a masa. Um, so can you speak to sort of the role of cities and urban settlements in trans-Saharan trade uh, in the period that the exhibition covers?
0: Sure. So um, the exhibition focuses on three major archeological sites in the Saharan region, and then uh, three additional sites in the forest region and in the central Sudan. So um, the three Saharan sites are Sijilmasa in present-day Morocco and Tadmekka and Gao in present-day Mali. We selected those sites because they're um, um, they represent three different zones um, that were part of this trade, the northern fringe of the Sahara Desert, the southern fringe of the Sahara Desert, and the, um, the Western Sudan and the Arc of the Niger River. Um, also, they were within the countries that we um, were, that I was working with as our um, partners for uh, uh, for requesting loans of materials to be in the exhibition. So the, ex- the exhibition has loans from Mali, Morocco, and Nigeria. Um, there are other sites that could have been in this exhibition in Mauritania, in Senegal, in Niger, uh, in Ghana, and Burkina Faso, but exhibitions have to be pragmatic at a certain level, right? You have to do what you can achieve. And so partnering with three African countries was um, the capacity that we had for um, and still, sort of to still achieve the, the project? So uh, it's interesting, and I think not widely known that urbanism existed in the Western Sudan um, from at least the fourth century, and, and even possibly before. Um, the, the same is true in uh, uh, the Central Sudan and um, there are sites in the forest region of West Africa that date to the eighth century, and they're well-developed, and that makes you think that surely there was urbanism in the forest region also well before the eighth century. So um, as in the eighth century, as trans-Saharan trade begins to amp up, that's um, not happening within a vacuum. That's building on already well-established trade networks. And there's even movement across the Sahara that predates the 8th century. So um, the exhibition moves both through place and through time. And so um, in the book, I thought it would be interesting to really do these sort of deep considerations of these sites to kind of root the project into those places that are the key case studies in the exhibition.
1: One of the most fascinating objects in the exhibit um, or some of the most fascinating objects in the exhibit um, are um, those which come from those which come from the Saharan region, but sort of also came from other places. So in particular, the uses of ivory in Europe, I thought, were mm-hmm. a genius touch just to sort of emphasize that this was a place, this was a place that deserves um, prominence in sort of the historical narrative that we give children in the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, what inspired that particular move in like using these objects such as um, the Virgin Marys on cast in ivory?
0: Right, right. Um, so the exhibition and the book um, take, let me just take a step back and say that we, um, I've been thinking as I've been working on this project, I've been thinking a lot about the nature of globalism mm-hmm. and I've come to understand, you know, there's this global turn in, um, in the academic world. And in working through this project, I've come to understand that global turn really is more of a decentralizing turn. So globalism um, in this exhibition and for me is about looking at the world from many different perspectives, and as you shift perspective, you see things differently, and you don't get a complete picture, a full well-rounded picture unless you make those localizing moves and so that is reflected in the uh, both in the book and in the exhibition itself so um, so what we've done in the exhibition in a sense is to place the Sahara and it's um, close hinterlands at the center. And we've sort of pushed Europe to the margins. And we've asked the question, which seems so obvious, where did that come from? So we start with that, where did that come from question with gold. And we open the exhibition with um, a lot of different examples of gold work from um, outside of the Western Sudan, but it's all gold that we've good reason to believe originated from sources within the Western Sudan. So when you look at gold fittings um, that were found in Spain that date to the 12th century, or you look at um, the gold uh, the gold leaf calligraphy on a page of the Blue Quran, or you look at gold that is on the back of a Sienese panel painting from the 14th century or the 13th century, we're asking where did that gold come from? And the answer is it came across the Sahara desert through trade. And then when we um, get to a later part of the exhibition and we're looking at the long reaches of Saharan trade, we return to this idea with ivory. And again, we ask that question, where did the ivory that is so Um, it's so iconic um, in our thinking about medieval Christian material, the the medieval Christian material world. Gothic ivories are, are, you know, are iconic things. And the answer to that question is that that ivory was coming across the Sahara Desert through trade. And we know that specifically for ivory, and this is the brilliant work of um, one of the contributors to the catalog, Sarah Garan, who um, has been thinking about the materiality of ivory and um, has um, brought into her, her art historical analysis of it, the understanding that it is only the Savannah elephant. So an elephant coming from the Savannah regions of West Africa Only the savanna elephant can grow its tusks to be wider than 11.5 centimeters above the nerve cavity. So in the Gothic period in Europe, there is a um, renaissance or kind of a a resurgence of ivory carving at a scale that, that hadn't ever been seen before or not for a very, very long time. And whenever you find an ivory object from the Gothic period in France, and it has a Um, you can tell that the ivory had a diameter of wider than 11.5 centimeters. You definitively know that that ivory came across the Sahara Desert in trade from West Africa. So that's kind of what we're, um, the point we're making there.
1: One of the things I enjoyed the most about the catalog, as I mentioned, you know, I was surprised by how, by the presence of archaeology and to what extent archaeology was emphasized, um, partially because it made me think about how, objects are found in addition to the fact that you know the provenance of objects as we're always hearing when an object is sold or whether or not something was um, a product of colonial trade or was looted um, one thing I really appreciated was that you opened the catalog with this essay about fragments which references the facts of which references the fact that the title of the exhibition is caravans of gold fragments in time um, and that's something you see in the exhibition of this reference to fragments. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to the question of fragments and also how we piece together histories using different sources.
0: Mm -hmm. Are you talking about Chris Avani's chapter? Yeah, it is so beautiful. Um, So again, in these meetings we had in developing the project, this question of the fragment was something we talked a lot about because. One of the reasons why a show like this has never been done before is because the material past, uh, the material past of Africa's medieval period is so highly fragmented. And it's hard to um, think about how to make space for that in the art museum. So we took that, we kind of embraced that challenge because we felt like the story was such an important one to um, present within the context of the art museum. Uh, So starting with this idea of these highly fragmented objects, we began to think about, well, how might we make sense of those fragments? And we came up with a methodology that included juxtaposing fragments with things that help us understand what the fragments were, um, reading the fragments, by looking at these contemporaneous texts um, and by putting the texts together with the fragments and the archaeological um, investigation, we can start to see where grains of truth lie in um, these uh, sometimes second and third hand descriptions of West Africa um, from the medieval period. And then by also looking at the fragments through the lens of what happens in more recent times where we have more, um, more material has survived, say from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries, as well as how cultural practices have a legacy um, or or, or a reflection of the legacies of the past. So um, the fragment um, became this sort of poetic idea within the exhibition and, um, Archaeologists um, sometimes talk about um, the imaginative quality of their work, and even um, they have coined this term, the archaeological imagination. And the archaeological imagination is how the fragment from the past can tr- can um, can invoke um, our ability to see and imagine um, a much bigger context from just a single small thing. And um, it felt like because of the nature of the starting point for the exhibition, which are these fragmented excavated materials from um, these sites around the Sahara Desert, that the fragment had to have um, an important place in the in the sort of um, thematics of the exhibition. I've actually built the exhibition. I see every element of the exhibition in a sense as a fragment at, at this point. Um, there there are fragments of text. There are fragments of, um, uh, uh, the, the sites themselves are like fragments. The, when you put multiple sites together, you get a bigger whole, right? Um, We've, in, we've woven in interviews with archaeologists and um, art historians, and even with a, a man who sells salt from um, the Sahara Desert in the market in Rissani in Morocco. So those interviews are fragments, and um, the works of art are fragments, and it's only by seeing all those slices of um, the story side by side that we see this much bigger picture.
1: No, I really enjoy that in particular, actually, the fact that you couch the period, the 6th through the 8th through the 16th century, th- th- me, um, with objects from that predate that and objects that uh, come from the 19th or the 18th century, because I think it's exactly what you said, that there are these continuities that do exist as much as you think of history as a rupture, as a foreign land. Um, the past as a foreign land. I think you really get the sense that um, the present can tell us a lot about the past. In particular, I actually saw that represented in the prayer beads Mm -hmm. from the 18th century, I believe, because that's a practice that continues today. 19th or 20th century. Yeah, those are beautiful. But they also look very different from things I've seen. Made by North, Af- um, North, Af- North and West African um, artisans, mm-hmm. and I was thinking the whole time I was looking at it. I was like, well, "How is this different? How is this the same? What does that have to do with trade? What has? What does that have to do with colonialism? What does that have to do with um, the nature of religious practice?" It's it's this really convoluted question, and it touches on all these different subjects that you these these themes that rather than subjects that you interweave into the exhibition itself. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: You know, I want to say one more thing about the fragment that you've just reminded me of um, because there is that idea of the past, right, is is a rupture. But the beautiful thing about the fragment is that it makes the past present. So in the exhibition, I felt so strongly about having the actual fragments in the exhibition because they're the time travelers. They exist in the present, but they're of the past. And by being in their presence, by um, looking closely at them, it's almost as if we can um, connect to the past through them. So because this is an art exhibition, um, we privilege the importance of actually being in the presence of the thing. And the book is a companion to that experience. Mm -hmm. So the book does its own work that's different than the exhibition, but the exhibition is very much about being in the presence of the thing.
1: There's a social consciousness to the exhibition and to its companion book. History, museums, academia, they are not neutral. So now Kathleen is gonna comment on the catalog's entry on migration, which mentions of course refugees and forced migration.
0: You would ask that question about Chris Abani's chapter about fragments, but another um, I think important chapter in the book is the last chapter of the book, which is the chapter about migration today. So um, I've said before that this is an exhibition and, and a book that um, like the, the main takeaway, if there could be any single one takeaway, I hope it's that um, by understanding this medi- the medieval past differently, we can also see the present differently. And the last chapter of the book is an important part of that. It talks about migrations across the Sahara today. Um, It's written by Galia uh, Benaria, who is a faculty member here at Northwestern and founded um, a um, Institute um, for uh, Unforced Migration. And um, she's looking at those movements across the Sahara and across the Mediterranean um, also through this lens of the past and seeing um, what the different motivations for people traveling across the Sahara today are, um, how they are often moving across routes that are the same routes that were traveled in the medieval period, how this travel has been part of life in those regions for Um, millennia and um, you know so often um, uh, migrations of Africans across the Sahara and across the Mediterranean in today's highly politicized world are seen as um, new or as um, about um, uh, uh, you know the kind of keeping people in or keeping people out of certain privileged spaces and I think um, this look that we take um, that Gallia Benaria takes of it um, through this lens of history is an important um, corrective to um, seeing um, contemporary migrations today.
1: It's also a good reminder I think of the exhibition as a whole um, how arbitrary borders are and how they how recent the invention of borders and, as you mentioned, privileged spaces, spaces or so citizenships, for example, right. can be um, for various individuals. Um, I mean, the motivations for people traveling are different than the same in many ways. So, right, yeah. right. And one of the things
0: Scalia points out is that um, in many cases, um, people are wanting to travel um, for um, short periods of time, right? They're wanting to go and come back. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I think that's often left out of the way that the story is told.
1: My frustration with my education and my training as a historian is not new to my listeners. So Kathleen and I are talking about the role of religion in Islam in West Africa, across the Sahara, because that's a story that needs to be told. And often, even in the hallowed halls of academia, it's not told. You mentioned religion. And in particular, this exhibition comes at a really... Timely moment we've seen in the last five or six years the publication of academic monographs, um, mostly from intellectual history, trying to recenter West Africa in Islamic studies, um, and it's it's a push that requires um, a rethinking in how Islamic studies specialists are trained. Because all of a sudden we need different languages, we need to be trained. We need to begin to think about these different histories that we weren't necessarily taught. When I was taught my Islamic civilization um, introduction class in graduate school, there wasn't a West Africa section. There wasn't an East Africa section. And I was, I, I asked my advisor, I said, like, well, there aren't enough weeks. We have to cover you know, the bosses and the Mayids. And I was like, but, and that was the year Osman Kain's book came out. like, but this is really important. Yeah. This is clearly, that book sort of served as this roadmap to what needs to be done in the field, what interventions need to. In uh, how we need to be trained. And now um, at the University of Cambridge, you have the Ajami Lab, which is trying to get um, is, is uh, training specialists in different scripts, different languages so that they can access these manuscripts. Um, that is to say, I wanted to ask specifically about the role of religion um, and how religion also travels or does not travel. Because sometimes things don't necessarily implant when they travel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um. Here at Northwestern, we also have the Institute for the Study of Islamic Thought in Africa. Um, it's an amazing program and um, involves. A, you probably know about it, but um, the study of um, the intellectual tradition um, in the Arabic language as it um, originates and um, grows within Islamic, you know, the Islamic world in Africa sub-saharan africa so um it, 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 there was a time um in a much earlier manifestation of the of this idea where i um in the 90s i had an idea of, uh, to do an exhibition about islam in africa and um for various region, reasons that exhibition didn't um didn't have legs um but I never left the idea totally behind. And when I started working on this project, it was in an effort to revisit that idea. Um, What I like about what I ended up doing with this project is that um, it's an exhibition about, um, that's really grounded in, um, in history. Um, It's an exhibition about movement and circulation of things, people, and ideas, Um, but Islam is an important facet of that story. So it's not an exhibition about Islam in Africa, but it's an exhibition where Islam and Arabic are um, important um, parts of the story. And um, so I think that through that um, approach, um, one can really see how... Um, how and where uh, Islam and Arabic fit and how um, essential they are to history. Uh, And, um, you know, it's impossible to kind of break apart um, the movement of trade, the movement of Islam and the movement of Arabic. They go together. Um, and, uh, and we can see also because this is about circulation, um, how West Africans are contributing to that so that it's not just a kind of one way or even a kind of two way movement. It's really, um, being part of, um, a complex development of, um, identity and religious practices
1: over time. I hope the message we're getting across is that the exhibition and its catalog or its companion book are telling the same story, but in different ways. So if you can't make it to the exhibition yourself, I highly recommend getting a hold of the catalog if you can afford it, if you can find it at a public library, and enjoying what it has to offer because it does tell the same story in a different way and the more processed inside of me, wanted to know exactly how they were built to complement one another. So Kathleen's going to tell us all about it. How are the book and the exhibition meant to be different? I mean, did you, did you prepare them for different audiences? Are they meant to be considered together? What was the conception behind both mm-hmm. in relation to one another? Uh, so we've, we,
0: we believed strongly that the project was important and uh, exhibitions are um ephemeral right they they're up for a while and then they're gone so uh we wanted it, the the project to have a lasting legacy and um there hadn't been um a, a kind of um there hasn't been a book that um brings together this broad a scope of inquiry about, um, West Africa and trans-Saharan trade. So we felt like we felt that this subject deserved a really substantial, um, publication that would, um, would add to the story we're able to tell in the exhibition. So we consider the book to be a companion publication, not an exhibition catalog. It doesn't publish every object in the exhibition, but it, it publishes, Uh, many of the objects that you'll see in the exhibition. It also publishes things that aren't in the exhibition, but um, mostly it goes into much deeper depth about um, the um, different components that are um, in many respects sort of told in broad brushstrokes in the exhibition. So the the book um, has 19 chapters um, it has 21 contributors working across three continents, and it is unabashedly interdisciplinary. Uh, the project is um, involved art historians, archaeologists, historians, and specialists in comparative literature, as well as anthropologists and others. Um, and so in the book, there are contributions from across these disciplines. Um, And each one is written in the sort of voice of that particular discipline. It also features specialists working across regions. So you know that our um, areas of specialization sometimes end up being quite compartmentalized also by region. So we have um, specialists who work in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Saharan region, in Europe, um, in North Africa – and we bring all of that together in a single book um and uh so when you it's also intended to be written with um for to have a great deal of interest for specialists but in a language that's accessible to the non-specialist so um because this is meant to be bringing a story um the story more into the mainstream. It felt important that the chapters were um, engaging and written, um, you know, in a in a uh, way that wasn't overly um, using overly specialized um, vocabularies. So um, all of that is um, woven into um, the book. It's also felt important that it be beautiful. And um, because it is a book that's coming out of um, an art museum and and art history. And so um, we actually um, worked with photographers in Mali, Morocco, and Nigeria to photograph, um, in some instances, for the first time, things that are seen in the exhibition catalog. So um, you can imagine that many of the archaeological um, fragments or um, recently excavated things had not been photographed for publication in a major book. So we um, did the work of photographing um, all of that material um, with photographers based in each country. And um, so that is, uh, and all of the public, all of the illustrations in the book are in color.
1: It truly is a beautiful text. And I also, I mean, you don't say this often about coffee table style books, but it's very easy to pick it up, read a chapter, then put it back down. Um, it's not the sort of thing that you sort of need to labor over. You can enjoy it and you can put it back. And I think each chapter is very compartmentalized, even though it tells part of the larger story and it definitely falls at the theme of everything. But it's, it's just, it's absolutely stunning. Congratulations. On Thank it. you. It's an achievement in itself. So I want to ask you more about sort of the conception of the exhibition because like you you mentioned earlier that it took eight years to get mm-hmm. to this point where it's finally open to the public. If you could talk about that and also sort of how uh, the creation of the catalog or the exhibition book mm-hmm. um, came along. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, yeah, it, it it takes a long time. You know, we we started from scratch in building the exhibition, and um, so uh, it this. The, 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 the the germ of the idea grew out of, um, I was already, I was deeply interested in medieval West Africa. Um, I sat down and I started reading archaeological site reports and of sites from the medieval period from around the Sahara Desert. And I started making a list of the things that were coming out of the ground. And, you know, I have a PhD in African art history and my mind was blown so, um, it was just so striking to me to realize that, you know, fragments of porcelain from central China were excavated at Todd Mecca on the Southern fringe of the Sahara Desert in present day Mali. You know, it, the scope of that material record is mind blowing. So, um, I, um, you know, it it took a while for me. I had to meet people. I had to reach out to these archaeologists and um, the the archaeologists I'm working with are um, some, uh, one is based here in the U S but, you know, another is based in the UK and another is based in um, Morocco and another is based or two are based in Mali and another is based in Nigeria. Um, So, you know, it, all of that had to come together and then meeting um, other specialists who are working on this um, and then everybody coming together. And I think it was it wasn't until the third scholars meeting uh, in each meeting. I would do, I would start the meeting with a presentation of kind of about where I was and my thinking about what might be in the exhibition and what the narrative of the exhibition might be. And it wasn't until the third meeting that I finally landed on a narrative that worked one that moved both through space and through time. Um, And it was after that, that I started conceptualizing what the book might look like. We all agreed that it was important that the book um, be, um, go into much deeper depth into each um, place or each topic than the exhibition could. And um, I got a lot of feedback from the, scholars involved in the project about how they might do the book. But in the end, I kind of went with the way I thought I wanted to do the book to be the best reflection of of the project. And so I've I organized the book into um four different sections groundwork, sites, matter in motion, and reverberations. And those sort of section headings speak for themselves. But um you know, as you read through the book, each chapter is in a sense like this fragment of information, and um it is meant to kind of convey a whole
1: when I visited the exhibition caravans of gold, I actually went twice in one day, so I went before I interviewed Kathleen, and that was about nine a m in the morning and then I went around eleven and when I went at eleven, it was bustling. I have never seen a museum space that Lie with excitement, with people moving back and forth and looking at objects and comparing them. And I'm not talking about small children. I'm talking about fully grown adults who are captivated by the objects on display and the way they were displayed. So I asked Kathleen about this. Who were they targeting when they built this exhibition? I mean, if exhibits, if museums, if academia is not neutral, what message were they trying to send and how was it received?
0: This is an exhibition that is taking some very specialized studies, bringing them together, and then kind of filtering them um, for a general public because we feel that this is a story that needs to move into the mainstream. And so, you know, my role as the curator is to find ways to um, get this story out there um, because it's so, it's it's really, um, can completely change the way we look at are present by looking at the past through a wider lens and seeing where there were interconnections and where there were players that maybe through time have been pushed to the side.
1: What is, if you could, if your audience could take away one message from the exhibition, what do you think that should be?
0: That. Africa played, or West Africa played a really important role in the formation of the world, um, the world of the medieval period, and that that has influenced the world we live in today.
1: Is that why you use the term medieval specifically, because you want to show these interconnections?
0: Yeah, I mean, this this was a topic of conversation. So it's important to understand that this exhibition, and obviously the book reflects that, has been put together over an eight-year period, working with um, a team of interdisciplinary specialists. And in that eight-year period of time, we had four meetings where we all came together and we talked about what the narrative of the show would be. And in one of those meetings, we talked specifically about language. And one of those conversations was about the word medieval. And in the end, we felt that um, by co-opting the word medieval and insisting on its globality that we were um, doing something important. The other thing is that we realized that the dates, this was through audience evaluation. If you say 8th to 16th century, most North Americans don't know how to understand what where that sits within time. Um, so they can't come up with the most... North Americans can't come up with examples of what happened in the 8th to 16th century. And it's like a really big period of time, right? So, but if you say medieval, people have a starting point. They can say, oh, okay, knights and kings and queens and the plague or whatever it is, right? Their starting point. And when you tie the word medieval to the word Africa, um, most people find that juxtaposition to be really intriguing and surprising. And so it creates um, curiosity. And so we thought if for a show geared to a general public, that was a really important um, attribute to using the word medieval.
1: What's the reception been to the exhibit itself?
0: Uh, Well, so I can tell you anecdotally that it's been phenomenal, Um, but also we've done some um, exhibition, while the exhibition's up, we've done some audience evaluation. And um, so, for instance, we know that the average time people spend in the exhibition is 45 minutes, which is huge for a museum exhibition, and that um, people find the content challenging to onboard, but they're willing to do the work. And so that really, uh, you know, supports our initial idea that this would be a story that people would be eager to hear about because it's one that they're not um, altogether familiar with.
1: One thing I applaud you for that I didn't know um, until I ran through the exhibit earlier today was that um, the, the text is in Arabic and the the headings for each of the different sections of the exhibit and the exhibit title itself. um, On one side you have English, on one side you have Arabic, and I really appreciated that, partially because to put Arabic in the public sphere in North America is really challenging. I'm sure some, I mean, you are in an art museum, people know, are sort of primed to anticipate that they're going to be... um, Faced with objects from different contexts, but it's still quite a bold thing to do. Um, well, thank you. I mean, we were
0: we felt very strongly um, this is a very multivocal exhibition. And um, by foregrounding the title of the exhibition right at the get-go in two languages, Arabic and English, um, and then reiterating that through the exhibition with each section heading. Uh, we felt that that would make the point really a lot of what happens in a museum exhibition happens um, somewhat subliminally. And that's one of those moments where we're making that point just through the visual encounter. Um, So it's not that we thought a bunch of, you know, Arabic speaking people would be coming and they would need to read that text. We were making a point through its use that this is an exhibition that. Um, from the start has to be seen through multiple lenses, and that Islam and Arabic are an important part of this story.
1: I think that's one thing you foreground really well by the use of texts, because you have a certain section of the exhibit where you have texts in Arabic or in, in Hajjami, I think some of them are. Um, and what I like about that, the use of the Arabic on in the actual signage is that Arabic isn't otherwise as simply a category or an artifact. It's part of the nature of the exhibit. It signals that your partner is abroad. Um, But then you have the artifacts and all of a sudden the artifacts are part of this living language because you see the Arabic text, but then you actually see the text themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, But the texts themselves, I think, do a really excellent job of, um, and I think this is included in the book, but anyone who's familiar with Islamic studies or, Middle Eastern history, North African history generally, or the history of the Muslim world, knows that Arabic is basically the Latin of the Muslim world. It's a living language; it's used in ways that Latin perhaps was not um, in the same period. But um, it is the level, the language of intellects.
0: Yes, right. So Arabic, of course, is one of the things that moves across the Sahara Desert in the medieval period. Um, and for the purposes of this exhibition in the book, we identify the medieval period as going from the eighth century, which is when um, Islam and Arabic begin to move across the Sahara Desert, and the 16th century, when Atlantic trade begins to um, uh, dominate over Trans Saharan trade. So um, as Islam, as Arabic and Islam move, merchants and um, kings and enslaved people are also moving as our goods. So this is an exhibition that's looking at the movement of things, people, and ideas. And we're looking at Arabic. Um, my, one of the contributors to the catalog talks about Arabic as, um, as a technology, as well as, as a kind of container for, um, knowledge. And so we look at it in both of those frames in the exhibition and, um, and also how West Africans, very early on, um, begin to contribute to an intellectual tradition using the Arabic language. So we feature books that are circulating from, um, say, uh, you know Spain or the Middle East or North Africa, but also um, scholars like Ahmed Baba, um, who was um, resident or who was from Timbuktu. Um, lived in the uh, 16th century, and how he and his peers are part of a scholarly tradition.
1: A question that plagues me on a day to day basis is whether those of us who focus solely on research or research and teaching, so those of us who are professors, if we don't think enough about the ethics of our work and whether or not that impedes our work. I honestly believe that curators, conservators, librarians, and archivists think much more in line with these principles and their work falls in line with these principles as a result. And this is where we can learn from them. So I posed several questions about best practices to Kathleen, hoping in turn that I can learn something that I can apply to my own work. So, you know,
0: I I want to start with with humbleness. (laughs) Um, This is a project that um is could only be done through collaboration, and um it was important to start with um a recognition of how little I knew and really how little I'll ever know. so you know I have the good fortune to be the spokesperson for the project and um for the people who contribute contributed to the catalog, but I'll never be the kind of expert. In, their, in the areas that they focus on that they are. Um, and that's, you know, I felt really privileged to be part of that. Um, in terms of the um, relationship building, you know, um, collaboration takes, it takes a commitment of time and it takes um, both uh, going and hosting. So um, I've traveled to Mali, Morocco, and Nigeria multiple times in the years that I've been working on the exhibition. I've also invited people, and we, the Black Museum, has invited people here to Northwestern um, in that period of time, multiple times, um, because relationships have to, they're, they are re- they require, um, re- they're relationships, right? They're relational, so it requires going both ways. Um listening and really being willing to um, uh, let each um, contributor have a say and a place. Um, one of the great things that we were able to do in terms of the programming during the exhibition is we brought six archaeologists here to campus. Um, all of them contributed to the book. And I thought it would be an amazing to have them um, actually here together to talk to our audiences. We visited schools. Um, we had programs with students on campus. We also had public programs, and they were able to share their work directly in their own voice um, with a much bigger audience than they'd ever done before, but also to talk to each other. So, being willing to make those opportunities for you know your collaborators, um, we did the same. The week of the opening, we had representatives from all the lender institutions here, um, and in some instances, multiple individuals. And we hosted a meeting where these um, museum and um, Uh, cultural patrimony institutions in Mali, Morocco, Nigeria, they all sat down together to talk to each other. And it was the first time some of them had ever met each other. So, you know, we were making sure in any good partnership that everybody's getting something out of it, Mm -hmm. um, I think is important. And then for this exhibition, you know, because we're dealing with materials of cultural patrimony, making the commitment to shed light on the value and importance of preserving those materials and the good work that's being done in those home countries to um, preserve and tell their own stories. So to bring those stories um, to a public beyond those places um, also, I think, is kind of a best practice.
1: So at the top of the interview, you heard Kathleen tell us about her favorite object. Now, I didn't anticipate asking this question when I walked in and interview her, I was inspired by the exhibit itself because I fell in love with several of the objects and I could list any number of the objects in the exhibition as my favorites. There was this large talismanic fabric, there were these prayer beads, there were the manuscript. So here's the entire clip of Kathleen telling us about her favorite object. This is a horrible question to ask and I like <laughs> asking it to solicit the reaction. Do you have a favorite object in the exhibit? Oh do I have
0: a favorite the exhibition? You know this exhibition is so multivocal, it's hard to have a single favorite object, but I do have um a couple personal favorites um, one of my favorite objects in the exhibition is a biconical bead it's a It's an object that I've known of for a long time It's in the collection of the troyidents Institute of Art. It dates to the late 18th or 19th century. And it was probably made in Senegal. Um, It's quite large. It's two to three inches in diameter at its widest point. A biconical bead basically looks like two ice cream cones that are put together at the mouth. And um, so this is a bead that I first saw illustrated in a book in the 1990s. And I've just always loved it. And it was only through this project that I've come to understand where the that bead shape comes from. It's actually a bead shape that originates in the medieval period and possibly even before. And it's really widespread across the um, Islamic world. And it made its way across the Sahara Desert in the medieval period. So for instance, at Gao, um, they have excavated terra, small terracotta beads um, from a medieval context that are miniature biconical beads. So we can see that that's it's a really distinctive shape. That shape is traveling in the medieval period. And in this bead from the Detroit Institute's collection, you can see how that bead form has also traveled through time. And in fact, you can still buy biconical beads in markets or from... Um, goldsmiths in Bamako or in, um, you know, uh, uh, Agadez in Niger. So this is a bead form that is rooted in the medieval past, but is hugely relevant still to this day as a kind of representation of identity. And, and they're just so beautiful.
1: That was a particularly nasty question to ask. It's <laughs> you to pick a child.
0: Well, I mean, another one that we have to talk about, of course, is the Tata seated man. Um, this is an almost life-size um, cast copper figure of a man seated in a very um, naturalistic pose, and it comes from um, the forest region of Nigeria. It was um, almost certainly made um, at Or near the city of Ife, but it was found um, in the town of Tada, which sits right on the banks of the Niger River. And it's cast from pure copper with just traces of arsenic and tin in the copper, which is phenomenal, um, a phenomenal feat casting pure copper. It was made in the 13th or 14th century And it represents an elite individual, probably some kind of leader, whether a religious leader or a political leader. And um, for the purposes of this exhibition, what's really intriguing about it is where that copper comes from. So there's only been one isotopic test of the copper undertaken, but that test suggests that the origins for the copper might, in fact, be um, the Alps region of Europe, might come from. the French Alps. And um, so uh, we know that copper was one of the commodities that was circulating widely in this Mediterranean and Saharan world in the medieval period. And at Ife, where they had um, deeply rooted and very technically astounding copper casting um, practices, well-established Um, They are importing the raw materials for casting copper and copper alloy objects. And that connects them to, um, we can see through an object like that, how connected they were to this um, um, intra-regional, inter-regional world.
1: I wanna thank you for sticking around for a rather unconventional interview. Yes, we were talking about the catalog or the companion to this exhibition, but we spent a lot of time talking about the exhibition as well. Also, I'm traditionally the host for the Middle East Studies channel, and this is more West Africa, the Sahara, and it was a little out of my wheelhouse, but it's an area that I seek to educate myself more on, and I wanted to bring that to this audience in particular. So, if you're a long time new books listener, you know what I'm about to ask Kathleen. And it's basically, what's she up to now? Um, so, I always sort of end the interviews with, well, I mean, first off, congratulations. It's a beautiful Thank you. exhibit. It's a phenomenal book. And I think the book will ensure that the exhibition and all the hard work and the collection, the curation of the objects will live on and the themes will live on, um, I hope. Uh, but I always ask, What are you working on now? What are your projects that you've sort of got in the docket? It's a really hard question to answer right now because
0: I'm still so in the thick of Caravans of Gold. Um, The exhibition, of course, is traveling to the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto and then to the National Museum of African Art. It will continue to travel through the end of 2020. And um, we're closely involved in, in working with our partner venues on the movement of the exhibition um, in many cases, uh, you know, we travel with it. We'll um, i um, be talking at both of those venues. And so um, there's also been a great deal of interest in the project um, from other institutions. And so I'm involved in talking to them about how it's been done. And um, uh, there's been huge international interest in the project. We've actually had press in 16 different countries <laughs> So um, it's it doesn't feel like even though it's going to be closing soon at the block um, that it's by any means over. Um, So, um, but I'm I'm, you know I'm also uh, working on um, what's coming next in the short, middle, and long run here at the museum, Um, and uh, part of my job is to make sure that we have a really balanced program and um, one that is um, global in scope. And so I'm um, thinking about, you know, what what other exhibitions um, can we um, present here at the Black Museum that continue to tell these stories about um, through time and place?